Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show here with my loyal compadre, Dr. Fred Gertz. The only two guys tough enough to actually come in, or maybe dumb enough. We're essential personnel, (laughs) unlike my son, David, who's on the line. Uh, uh, David Rudy, certified financial planner professional. David, uh, are you there on the line so I know I have you? Yep, I'm here. Can you hear me okay? Maybe I didn't hit him right. I'm going to hit it once more. David, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, good. Okay. So I, did, I finally pressed it twice like I was supposed to. Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Uh, again, I'm here okay, with uh, Dr. Fred Gertz and Certified Financial Planner Professional David Rudy. You can call in with your questions, 217-356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 3515357. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without, without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. And normally I'd say welcome to those on Facebook Live, but when we move to the new studios, we'll probably have that up and operating again. Well, Dr. Fred, we got <laughs> no shortage of things to talk about, and uh, I see we do have a call off the on the front end here, and so we're going to go to Earl. I think Earl's ready. Yeah, Earl. Hey, how's it going, gentlemen? It's going fine. How can we help you? I just got done with uh, Alan Greenspan's uh, autobiography, and um, I have uh, two questions to ask. Uh, first of all, I would uh, like y'all's opinions on um, how he did as a, a Fed chair. And my second question is, he talked about the budget surpluses of the 90s. Now, I've over the years, I've always read and heard that the budget surpluses of the 90s was an accounting trick. So my question to you was, is, was that an accounting trick, or did we actually have authentic budget surpluses in the 90s? Well, let's do the um, Alan Greenspan uh, first. Uh, uh, two things have been said about him, that either he is uh, very lucky or very good. He had good timing. He, uh, he uh, was in a, a situation where we basically uh, got rid of inflation and uh, it was uh, partially on his watch that was a, a a very positive thing and he had the good sense to leave before the crisis of uh, 2007 to 2009 so milton friedman uh, uh probably one of the two most famous economists of the american economists of the 20th century uh thought the fed chairman uh should be very uh routinized and not uh, not make judgments one way or another all the time but yet uh, greenspan did that and, and uh milton freeman actually gave him credit saying he, he was either very good or very lucky so I, again i think he was a very very important figure during his uh his tenure good things happened but again he did solve all our problems uh going into the future the other uh right. question was about um the the Surpluses. There actually were surpluses in the last few years of the uh, 1990s. It was one of the few times in history, if you go back <clears throat> to about 19, the 1960s all the way until today, there's only been a, a very few years where we had surpluses, and it was basically in the, in the late 1990s. And the reason for that was it, it was a very strong uh, financial markets. Equities were going up, uh, creating lots of uh, 
lots of capital gains, uh, unemployment was very low. So things were going very well in the economy, and we actually did have a surplus. And it shows how, how quickly things change. Uh, uh, again, this is a long time ago now, over 20 years ago, but people were talking about what would happen if we actually did away with the, uh, not did away, but play, paid down the U.S. debt. Uh, we were running surpluses. We would uh, uh, you know, cash in the debt, pay it off, and what would we do without the debt? Well, that lasted about three or four years. We had the re- uh, recession of the early 2000s, and then since then it's been a pretty uh, uh, bleak picture in terms of uh, surpluses and deficits. Yeah, it's, uh, one thing he was talking about is uh, they actually uh, had the question of uh, what to do with all the surplus. And I remember this conversation going on in the 90s, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, duh, we got all the surplus. Let's just stock the debt out. And then being that it's a government entity, once we get the debt cleared off, let's see if we can't reduce some taxes, take take advantage of all this. Oh, yeah, that was the, that was the uh, plan. But the plan, the plan uh, changed very quickly. Yeah. Uh, they were talking about surpluses as far as the eye could see. That was a Clinton term, and then within a couple of years, it went away. And then was that because of the 2000, basically, stock market collapse, right. and we had the dot-com bubble exploded, and then the economy uh, kind of got a little bit, you know, right. got into rough shape there for a few years. And we had uh, uh, the, the 2000s have not been uh, <laughs> a you know, pleasant time, and uh, lots of things uh, happened uh, uh the bubble burst in, in the early 2000s. We had the big financial crisis. Now we have the virus. So we've had some strong years in between. But uh, uh, two really big uh, things that have happened that uh, it's like the uh, 100-year flood that occurs every 10 years. Yeah, and Fred, you yeah. know, and the stock market kind of bears out that, like you mentioned, since the 2000s. Uh, just the other day I looked at the 20-year you know, basically annualized compounded annual return of the Standard & Poor's 500 Index, which represents the 500 biggest co- companies in America. Basically, it's Corporate America, Inc., and it's below 4% a year. It's into the 3%, right. 3.7. And we're used to thinking in terms of 10% per year compounded was what most people would quote as the average annual return. Yeah, there's, there's also the, the endpoint bias. I mean, it depends of what course. you choose. So, so if you choose just before the downturn in 2000 and take the depth of the current uh, downturn it, it looks pretty bad yeah but even before the current downturn it was still one of the lowest right 20 year returns and it was in the lowest fifth percentile 95 percent of all other 20 year periods but there's a lot of biases yeah. in that data because you know when you roll it from one month to the next there's a lot of serial or autocorrelation all that nonsense uh anything else earl uh, just just an observation then another thing he was talking about was the y2k bug I remember when all that was going on, I was kind of, uh, you know, they were talking about uh, people worried about the bank shutting down and uh, sort of people putting, uh, taking their money out of the bank. But I went around telling mm. people, you know, these banks, they do a, a million dollars at least worth of business on a daily basis. They were not going to let uh, a computer virus get in their way. Yeah. So they probably have people working on it. And even if anything does happen, they probably hired the smartest people to, to deal with it. And, he he addressed that like uh, three years out uh, because of the fears of the Y two K. They basically enforced uh, uh, the, the 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 federal government's banking system to modernize, and they they talked everybody, all the banks to modernize their systems. And because we're the uh, a major influence in financial markets, they talked all the other banks uh, all over the world to do the same thing. So. Y2K came, uh, there was no problem at all because yeah, right. they 
all forced to mo- modernize their systems. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. Thanks, Earl. Thanks for calling. Oh, okay. And the Y two is an example of. Uh, I'm reminded now of uh, Donald Rumsfeld. He uh, made the famous statement: "There are known knowns and known unknowns, unknown unknowns." And so, we're in a situation where we don't have a lot of experience, and why <clears throat> the Y two K thing was a, a situation where it could have had uh, really substantial downsides. Uh, uh, utilities shutting down because of right. uh, the vi- not the virus, but the uh, lack of. Uh, a proper programming, but it turned out to be a non-event. But it could have been a, a big event, and we didn't know beforehand, yep. and we know afterwards. So it, it's easy to go back and say, well, people were really stupid to worry about why why 2K. Well, they probably weren't stupid, but uh, it, it was a good, uh, uh, either a lucky situation or, or planning ahead. And the current situation is the same kind of thing where we're dealing with all kinds of unknowns where we don't have a lot of history and we have to make decisions. You can't wait around to get the data. You have to uh, go forward and, and make some decisions. That's the situation we're in right now. And that's one of the things I addressed, uh, oddly enough, in my most recent newsletter, um, an eight-pager, I think. And if anybody uh, listening wants to get that, they could just uh, call the office at 356-1400. We'd be happy to share my thoughts. My son, David, he probably won't admit it now. Said it was the best newsletter I ever wrote. Great. Of course, he wasn't around, Fred, when I was writing them 25 right. years, 30 years ago. Right. Right? It's a pretty important ones back then. But one of the issues I addressed is, you know, it's amazing how much time was spent uh, in the media about the inverted yield curve. And that was a yeah. risk we knew about, a potential risk. And I wrote in the, in the newsletters was it's always the risk, it's the unforeseen risk that always seems to catch us. And it's unknowable to begin with is what you were saying. It's the unknown unknowns. Those are the risks nobody obviously can focus on, but those are usually the ones that, because nobody was prepared for it, they tend to amplify any problems. And uh, and I think a, a few shows back, I mentioned a quote by Carl Richards that said, "Risk is what's left over after you think you've thought of everything." Right. Uh, and it certainly, I think it goes a long way of explaining. Sure. If you went back uh, six months and asked, uh, you know, financial people or economists, whoever, uh, what are the top ten worries you have? <laughs> the uh, virus would not have been in the top 10 or probably the f- top 50. Yeah, I, I think you're right. So, I mean, that's always a thing as investors to think about. It's as much as the media, the financial media, wants to, uh, you know, go on and on and wax on about this risk or that risk. That's the known risk. Everybody's yeah. aware of it already. It's priced into the markets. It's, it's always going to be the one you right. didn't see coming that is the one that shocks you. And this is, Fred, uh, from not a duration so far, but from a magnitude, a speed uh, of the de- the decline going into the lows in March when the broad U.S. market was down about 35% or so. Uh, I think now it's probably down some 18%. Yeah. So it's made a, a pretty big recovery. Uh, we'll talk more about that. But uh, it certainly got a lot of people's attention because of the, the, you know, within 14 or 15 days, we go from all-time highs to a real problem. Right, and, and it's a, uh, again, uh, uh, there's always a term, this time it's different, and it, usually it's not different, usually it's the same, but this time it is actually different because the shock came not from the economy uh, kind of, uh, uh, not disintegrating, but uh, losing speed. It was simply uh, uh, from the top shutdown and, and things stopped happening because it was uh, required or mandated. So it's quite different from the normal thing where, uh, one thing leads to another. You know, there, there's uh, maybe overinvestment in the automobile right. industry, or a more uh, cyclical or, type of situation, you know, you know, or uh, a bubble in the financial markets where it 
kind of you know see it coming, but you, in the, at least in, in retrospect you can. But here, uh, it was something that really was like it's not exactly an asteroid strike, but uh, <laughs> a little bit like that. Certainly event driven and one that couldn't have been foreseen, you know, six months ago. But kind of getting back to that, it's different this time. You know, it always seems it's different. I, I like to think of this. The triggers are always different. No, it's, it's, the, the problem is different. The, the f- response probably is, at least for financial issues, is probably pretty much the same. But, but the, the difference, though, this time is uh, like giving people money usually is, yeah. uh, is the solution in regard to uh, stimulating the economy. But if you give people money and the stores aren't open yeah. and they can't go to the restaurants, then it may help them pay their rent, but it's a, it's a different kind of problem that probably has to be addressed in a different uh, different way. And again, the the uh, uh, immediate answer is we have to figure out ways to uh, get things open and start uh, start operating again. Would it be fair to say I keep reading this as being called uh, uh, stimulus? Uh, it seems to me it's more of a rescue than a stimulus. Would yeah. that be fair? It's a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think so. It's a little bit like the uh, two thousand seven two thousand nine where. It wasn't exactly a stimulus. It was a, a recapitalizing the banks, which was sometimes you know uh, called welfare for the uh, banking system. But it was a probably welfare that was uh, well targeted because uh, if the banking system failed, the whole economy was going to fail. And this may be more of a uh, a kind of uh, you know recapitalizing, allow people to pay their rents, that kind of thing. Uh, it's not going to stimulate the economy until we actually are able to go out and spend the money. Let's talk about the downside a little bit of this these programs we're talking about four or five trillion dollars potentially i read an article in uh, uh real clear economics uh it was talking about all the states and municipalities having trouble but they start out with saying the deficit will exceed 3.8 trillion this year it's a watchdog group that they referred to and they predict the debt to exceed 100 percent of the entire economy the deficit is on track to exceed 3.8 trillion as i said uh, even if con congress doesn't enact anymore so even without any additional spending that they're talking about. And the nation's debt will rise to levels not seen uh, since the country emerged from World War II. I'll go just, I'm almost done here. Uh, federal budget shortfall is nearly four times the $984 billion deficit for fiscal 2019. <laughs> we had almost a trillion right. dollar deficit. Now we're talking about one that's yeah. four times. It represents 18.7% of the economy. So now I'm getting clients who suddenly are worried about, what about inflation? What are we going to do right. about that? My My initial response is, I don't think Jerome Powell, the federal uh, chairman, yeah, chairman of the Federal uh, Reserve, I don't I, – now, maybe I'm wrong. I doubt if they're sitting around worried about inflation as much as deflation. No, they probably have someone in the back room thinking about how we disentangle ourselves in a year or two from this. But uh, the th- same thing was true in uh, in uh, 2008, uh, 2009 situation. I, I, almost everyone was saying with well, this huge influx of infusion of uh, – of uh, liquidity into the system is going to end up with uh, down the road really uh, big inflationary consequences that never happened, and probably for special reasons that it wasn't. It was more just to stabilize the balance sheets than it was to actually stimulate the economy. And I, I think the uh, you know the, the same thing is true here. In, in, in some ways, it probably is not going to be as bad as as we're saying right now. Right. But, but again. Uh, we can always say we told you so because uh, everyone was talking about uh, we had these uh, basically very good times, lowest unemployment rate in right. uh, recent history, 50, 60 years. And yet we were running a trillion-dollar deficit and had interest rates close to zero. The argument was, well, if something bad happens, we have no ammunition to deal with it. Well, the ammunition now is adding to the 
deficit to make it even larger than it uh, was before. So again, we were we went into it uh, ill-prepared, and it, we're going to have to live with the consequences. I don't think anyone suggests now's the time for austerity. Though. No. Uh, uh, We've, we tried that before, right? Yeah. Wasn't that really is, – uh, is, would it be fair to say we did – there were a lot of policy decisions that were kind of backwards in the late 20s, early 30s that maybe exacerbated a recession into a depression, or is that oversimplified? Well, that's the uh, – there are about 10 different theories, but uh, the, 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 probably the most prevalent one is that the – Federal Reserve uh, moved a uh, uh, serious downturn into a great recession by uh, basically not not keeping the banks open, uh, not not expanding the money supply. So uh, I heard a story once where uh, uh, like the St. Louis Federal Reserve was the uh, culprit. Supposedly they lost no, no money during the uh, the uh, Great Depression because they. If a bank was in trouble, they could go down and close it down. And so they, they saved their money, but they wrecked the, uh, the credit system. And that's a time when people are demanding cash, and that's why right. they say, you, explain, you know, when people yeah. are demanding cash, you need to provide it. Right. Also, I think uh, there was – I was listening on the uh, way down uh, to the station today, and someone called in, and the person was conflating – uh, the Federal Reserve with the uh, with the uh, fiscal policy spending money. So the Federal Reserve is going to put in trillions and trillions of dollars into the system, but that's not the same as bar- as we talked about earlier, borrowing money to send out checks and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's you know, it, it's you could probably make an argument that back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, some of the the things the Federal Reserve did actually made money for the government in the long run. I, yeah. I think in the long run they did, and that is completely different than like you start printing money and sending out checks. Is it fair to say printing money, Fred? I mean, I, I lightly it, say that, and I, I let's catch not, myself I, saying that. It's a, a shorthand. I mean, it's not. They don't actually. I know it's digital, they, they, but, but they they borrow and 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 so on, and they don't necessarily pay people back with dollar bills, but right. they, they do it with credit. So it's a basically the same sort of thing. So you know, back in my younger days, we always talked about well, they're, they're just printing money, and mm-hmm. it's like printing money yeah. out of thin air. Okay, we need another uh, yeah. hundred billion. We'll just go to the yeah. printing presses. Now it's just essentially it's digital, but to well, some was, extent there is this element yeah. of printing money out of thin air. Yeah. Well, it was then too, really. I mean, I, uh, sure. It's always been uh, the Federal Reserve uh, uh, infuses money into the banking system, the banking system and lends it out and so on. So it's creating money maybe is better than printing it. Well, since you're – I consider you an expert on the state of Illinois and, the you know – not, I wouldn't say maybe it is politics, but, you know, the economics yeah. of the state, et cetera. I know you usually put out that flash index. I didn't realize you. Yeah, uh, we, we uh, uh, curtailed it because the information necessary to do it wasn't available. So. Okay. So it wasn't a judgment that we just don't want to shock people. It was no. uh, more well, like I mean, the information I, just it's not. A, it's a long story. That, oh, okay. That, well. that, that basically, uh, I use tax revenue to, to get an uh, idea about how the economy is okay. doing. Then when the, when the uh, federal government, the Shut state, delayed the uh, filing dates and they stopped the payment Got of uh, sales tax, and that, that data became uh, not very useful. Well, this real clear article, I, I really meant to talk about this one before the last one. I just I mixed them up. Uh, it talked about how COVID-19 is frightening and dangerous to state and local finances, too. The median state could fully operate for 28 days without revenue by drawing on those rainy day funds. And no state, they went out of there, they really kind of picked on Illinois. No state is more at risk from COVID-19 than Illinois. It has the lowest credit ratings, the highest taxes, highest fund, unfunded pension debt, smallest rainy day fund, fastest shrinking population, and a deep 
uh, and deep structural budget deficits. Illinois needs federal help more because COVID-19 crisis compounds its pre-existing situation. And they went on to say how some Illinois politicians pretend publicly that our finances are that our finances are okay as our leadership scrambles to Washington for more help. So this author was saying, don't believe him. Anyone paying attention knows Illinois suffers from chronic financial problems in that it's been failing its residents already for years, which is why Illinois' population consistently shrinks. They went through two options, and then I'll let you respond. Uh, of like, how does Illinois get out of this? Option one, federal government provides tens of billions of dollars, et cetera, et cetera. Because something in the range of $300 billion in federal aid should work. But then went on to say, well, wait a minute. Uh, states that offer more modest pension plans to their employees or that funded their pensions are not likely to support that protection plan. So the op- option two, they actually do provide three. And it's the third one I that they don't call an option. But th- there are other options. Federal government provides Illinois a few billion this year to ameliorate the immediate COVID revenue shortfall and offers Illinois a few billion more each of the next few years if it stabilizes its finances and stems its population exodus. Well, I mean, that's those are his theories. And But yeah. uh, he did say many people are surprised to learn it's illegal in Illinois for the legislature to reform state and municipal pensions. And so it really is it's kind of, but they, they brought this idea. It said the one solution could be the federal government could preempt Illinois' constitution to eliminate the prohibition on pension reform with a statute such as this goes on just to basically talk about the safety and welfare of their residents and if and to the extent the state's legislature and government determine that it's necessary or proper to modify the terms etc cetera, etc cetera. basically the, the, the federal government gives the state the ability to go ahead and modify that is that right. even, is that even possible I mean, it's possible, but it's not very likely. It's uh, basically a, a kind of de facto bankruptcy. Uh, states aren't allowed to go uh, – there's no provision for states going bankrupt, so they can't uh, do what uh, uh, businesses do and, and uh, local governments do sometimes to, to go into bankruptcy to restructure their debt, but the state can't do that. Uh, but, uh, so that, that's not very likely, uh, asking the, the federal government to do things. And there's still constitutional issues even if that were the case. But I think let let me comment about the uh, things in general. This is a fairly common thing where uh, we have obviously very serious problems now and people are are loading on all kinds of things that are kind of extraneous to the actual problem. So when people say, what do we do about uh, the virus? What we need is uh, national health care or free health care or something of that sort, which may or may not be a good idea, but it's not really part of the the, the crisis. And the same thing is true here. The pension system is an ongoing kind of uh, a problem that's going to uh, be around for a long time. But that's not really something we need to or should address at this point. What we need to address is keeping the, the state functioning on the next two or three years. And again, it would be nice if the federal government uh, stepped in and gave us money. They probably will give us a little bit, but it's not going to be enough to uh, deal with everything. So it's the same kind of issue that we need to. Uh, uh, need to um, get a handle on things and, and, and I guess some, maybe some aid to restructure the short run but then uh, rationalize things in the long run but that hasn't happened I've been here 40 years and it yeah. hasn't happened in 40 I years I just wondered I was just wondering to myself maybe this is the trigger to actually cause some reform yeah but that's probably wishful thinking well there's a there's a, a digression but in the Mexican crisis uh, uh, in th- 20, 30 years ago, uh, someone said there are two ways to solve it. One, the, uh, the Virgin of Guadalupe could come down from heaven and provide us with enough gold to uh, tie us over. The other is we could uh, restructure our finances and get serious and, and discipline ourselves and 
And they said, unfortunately, it's more likely the Virgin's going to come down <laughs> than we'll restructure. <laughs> so, uh, you know, obviously for state of Illinois, though, this is going to make things tough things tougher. But it's tough every place. I mean, it's, it's tough every place. Uh, Illinois has fortunately only been uh, moderately damaged by the virus so far compared to New York. But again, like the federal government, we we came in running on empty or even running below empty. So it's going to be more difficult for us and other places. But I think right now the uh, it's not going to be easy for any state, and it's going to be a little bit more difficult for Illinois. But the main thing is to get the economy back functioning again. On that note, kind of from a sense of proportionality, uh, we have Chicago, and then there's the rest yeah. of Illinois. If uh, Total speculation on my part. If for some reason by the end of April, uh, Governor Prisker says, hey, we're going to kind of ease up on downstate Illinois, and but we're still going to remain tight in yeah. Chicago – is, is essentially whatever happens in Chicago, so goes the state of Illinois' economics. Is, no, I think is so. it like by a factor of 80%? No, it's, very, or? it's not 80%, but it's probably, if you take the metro area or the area north of uh, well, we think of, Chicago. of, of uh, uh, I-80, then you're talking about probably 75% okay. more. Yeah. But, but again, uh, the, the other thing, though, it's, it's like uh, some things saying, well, uh, we might want to do something and – uh, it might be a good idea, but if you can't enforce it, it doesn't make any difference. So you can say, well, okay, well, we, we don't allow drugs, but there obviously are drugs coming in all, all, all different ways illegally. Well, the same thing is true. I think the the uh, uh, shelter-in-place order is breaking down. I'm, I've noticed a huge increase in traffic and things of that sort, and the longer you go, the more difficult it is. So we have two things uh, working against the shelter-in-place. One is that uh, we want to get the economy started again, and people aren't really adhering to the rules as well. So I think it, uh, 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 sooner the better is to try to roll things out and get things moving again. Do you think there's that mentality when you look in our local newspaper and you say, well, there's been two or three or four deaths related to this, that people from a proportionality, I'm not arguing that it's right or wrong, I'm just wondering human nature, the way we're wired, we go, Wow, four people out of 100,000. Now maybe, arguably, it yeah. could get worse, and I yeah. understand all that. I'm talking about the human side where maybe people are going, you know, I'm kind of tired of sitting around inside, and maybe that's right. leading to some of this. I think so. And, and again, uh, it, there are places where uh, it's not, not serious, but there are places where it's deadly serious, so it's hard to know. It also, uh, I, I guess I fall back on these bigger kind of philosophical things, but it's not easy to manage an economy. I mean, uh, why does socialism fail? Uh, it fails because it's too complicated. I mean, not not the, uh, the, the U.S. socialism we're talking right, about no, now, but the real socialism where you try to plan everything. It's too complicated to make all the decisions, coordinate information and so on, and, and it just breaks down. Well, the same thing is true now. People are complaining, should we have the cannabis stores open and close the paint stores or whatever? There are a zillion different uh, decisions you have to make, and, and almost all of them are going to be ad hoc, and probably a lot of them are going to be wrong. So I think we need to to start uh, just moving towards opening things up as soon as possible. I think so, too. That's my sense, and it seems the more arbitrary it se- begins to seem to people, then the the more likely they are to just say the yeah. So now I mean it's, it's I mean if you're running a a, a store, I mean it, maybe it's not fair that you can go into Walmart to buy your food, but you can also go to the other aisles and buy a zillion other things. While the store that just sells the non food items may have to close. So there are a million different uh, comparisons that are going to seem unfair in this kind of situation. So the sooner the better, I think is to yeah. And my guess is they'll. They'll get a better handle on this right. as time goes on. The models will get better. Well, I, I'm not sure about the models getting better. I think we have to take some uh, risk. It's like the 
I don't know whether it's the known unknown or unknown unknown, but we have to take some steps. We don't know exactly what the what the consequences are. And well, we do know there are consequences, right? right to keeping things closed. I mean, right. that's that's not an unknown. That's a just yeah. a question of how bad. What we really don't know is we've never done it before, yeah. really, have we? Anything like this? Well, I mean, I guess I read in the paper that not not this. Uh, uh, Severely, but uh, in 1949, I guess it was a polio uh, scare here, and they, they they shut down a lot of things. And again, I also uh, uh, someone said that uh, after the 1918 flu epidemic, people didn't, it didn't they just turned the switch, and people started uh, doing things. There were uh, difficulty getting crowds for a couple years later. People didn't want to go to big right. events and things of that sort. So people are going to self-select here, I think, and do some things differently than they did before once we open them up. But again, it's hard, you know, we've heard stories about parents rebelling against uh, teaching at home and things of that sort. So, <laughs> well, I'm glad it didn't happen when my four kids were. Well, I've also found that uh, uh, I'm teaching a class, and uh, teaching online is not easier than teaching in person. Teaching in person is a lot easier. I think so. Even when we have Zoom meetings with our clients, you know, uh, I think there's this fantasy in our industry that it could be 100% virtual. But yeah. I guess maybe I'm just old enough or too old to think yeah. there's something about being able to almost a different sense you get from yeah. a person when you're sitting across from them versus on video just doesn't translate to yeah. me 100%. It's, look, we do what we have yeah. to do. And we've been using Zoom for the last couple of years uh, for client meetings from time to time. So we were sort of prepared for it and we're used to the technology but i suspect a lot of people weren't we're going to go to brian brian you're online too how can we help you today hi good good morning um i i just have a question about the uh, stimulus checks that are going to be going out um through a series of events um the address on my taxes is uh, no longer valid and uh and I need to enter my uh, routing numbers and stuff to, so that they can direct deposit. You can go to irs.gov, I'm told. I haven't really looked into it, but I know there is a there is a mechanical way. You can go onto their website and update your information from what I understand from my reading that that might be able to cure it to where they don't may physically mail you a check. Oh, did, did, uh, are you, did you file electronically and have a bank uh, uh, payment or, or re- refund? I've never had, we haven't had refunds in, in decades. Okay. So that, they, they don't have my routing number. Okay. Do you, are you, do you, do you currently get Social Security? No, sir. Okay. Uh, there's another loop. Well, I, I think, uh, I mean, it may well be that it will be misrouted. I'm sure you'll get it eventually, but if you could intervene, it might work. But <clears throat> the problem we face here is that all of these government help agencies are not scaled up to the the uh, size of the, the problem now. So uh, people are really critical of Illinois' unemployment uh, system because we have unemployment compensation now that's uh, been uh, made more more generous. But unfortunately, most people can't access it right now because, you know, in, in the uh, days prior to the virus, there were, you know, maybe a few hundred people doing it. Now they'd have to have a few thousand to take all the, the claims. They simply don't have that. There's also a story on 60 Minutes about New York having the same kind of problem. So we simply don't have the infrastructure to deal with this. And that was one of the reasons why they were going to send out the checks, uh, sort of not at random, but, uh, but basically to existing accounts just to make it fast. And you're, you're kind of the collateral damage, I guess, in the sense that you're not uh, in a position to, to receive it directly. So I'm looking to go into the IRS.gov site to see if you can't kind of intercept it by entering your information 
in there, and then I think you have a chance that it will correctly go to your direct deposit. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they'll have okay, a, well, a remedi- they'll probably have a remedial program to you know there'll, there'll be lots of mistakes made, and again, it's not going to help you in the next few weeks, but I'm sure you'll get your money eventually. Well, I just um, I've seen some websites, but I am leery of uh, scanning sites, and yeah. I understand they can make them look just like real and all that sort of thing. And the information they're asking for is very sensitive. Well, I think if you go to the IRS, the, the basic IRS website, and work off there, you'll probably be all right. But again, you always have to be careful. Yeah, yeah. I would go to irs.gov, gov, and you know that's going to be legit. Look up in your web browser to make sure it didn't get hijacked, and there's nothing else in front of it. But if you do that, I'm I'm confident that you won't have any problems. Well, I, you have problems. Okay. Well, you may have problems. <laughs> I mean, as far as getting, uh, <laughs> getting hijacked or being on a, and on somebody's yeah. fake site. But you're right. You can't be too careful. And I'm glad you actually brought that up, Brian, because these types of situations bring out the scammers, if you can believe it. And everybody yeah. should be on heightened awareness before you do anything. I always tell my clients, I go, look, not everything we do is financial, but use us as a resource. If you're unsure, before you press a button, reach out to one of us. We'll investigate it first, and then we'll tell you whether it makes sense to get on that website well, or not. Yeah, well, I was I was going to call uh, uh, Brian uh, in the previous hour, but I figured you guys would have the knowledge. The knowledge so. Well, I think we got about as close as we can get, so we're going to have to count that good enough for government work. <laughs> okay, thank All right, you. thanks. We are going to go to Donna on line three. Hi, Donna, how are you? Fine, thank you. Um, I have a question. I worry about the sustainability of the economy, and uh, it just could not continue to go on like this, and the government government cannot keep printing money. I think that it uh, things should start to open up next week gradually. Not the beaches, maybe not the football stadiums, but let the small businesses come back to work, open up, people have to get in the job force again. And also, I think it's time that people take responsibility for themselves. If you feel you're old and you have a compromised uh, health system, stay home. Give people a choice. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Well, that's good. I hope that the uh, governor follows your advice. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to hold my, I'm not going to cross my fingers in Illinois that we're going to get as much relief as maybe you and I. We're, no. we're, we don't know that we're on the exact same page, but kind of the sentiment that probably sooner is better than later. Right. To, well, to, there, there's a to adapt. There's kind of a uh, what economists would call an asymmetric problem that uh, if you keep things closed, even if it's unnecessary, you never know. But if you open it up and things go badly, you get blamed for it. So I think they're overly cautious in that regard because there's there are risks on both sides but the risk of keeping it, it uh, closed too long doesn't really show up while the risk of opening it too early uh, does show up but again I, I think given what we learned so far that it seems like uh, uh, in many states uh, maybe aside from New York things have, uh, have gone fairly uh, not well not well but better than uh, we might have expected so I think it's worth uh, taking some risks now and moving in that direction yeah uh, I'm going to move on a little bit now that we have David. We still have you on the line, correct? Yep. Yep. Still have, you, here. have you learned anything, Dave, from yeah. Fred and I? 
I think we probably need to talk about the investment side. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, like some of the things that are actually blocking and tackling are no required minimum distributions, and there's some other things that I'm going to have David go over. But let's tackle that first one first, the fact that the CARES Act has basically eliminated the uh, requirement that if you are required to take a, requ- a required minimum, a lot of the same word, required minimum distribution, uh, that maybe we don't have to do that in 2020. And I want you to kind of clean that up and then talk about what if somebody already has taken it earlier in the year, what they might do about that if, if they really wouldn't take the required minimum distribution if they weren't required to do so. Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, uh, required minimum distributions, which normally, I guess with the new act passed, you'd have to start taking money out of your retirement account age 72 um, in the year that you turned 72. It used to be 70 and a half. So for the people who are already taking them, they would have these scheduled required minimum distributions. Um, but just to help people out a little bit, uh, the CARES Act basically said, look, for all basically all retirement accounts, you don't have to take a required minimum distribution for the tax year 2020. Um, the issue that you can run into is some people have already taken them. So um, as you mentioned, there are some corrective kind of things you can you can do. First and foremost, you always have the option to put money back into an IRA uh, within 60 days. So that's just whether it's the, you know, the CARES Act or not, you always had that option. Um, but now they basically um, extended that, I guess, so that you can put the money back, what is it, within the next three years, I think, um, into your IRA. So if you if you took your required minimum distribution, you can simply put it back in if you have that cash available. The exception to that is if you have an inherited IRA and you took your required minimum distribution, there's really, you're kind of out of luck. And then what about... Any other... Oh, go ahead. I just want to ask you about the qualified charitable distribution because I've had a couple of people ask me about that. Has that been muddied up at all? Uh, can people still do that? No, it, it it really hasn't. You can still do it. It's just not going to count towards satisfying a required minimum distribution because you don't have a required minimum distribution. But that doesn't mean it's not a good way to give money to charity because you're still giving entirely pre-tax dollars to charity. So. Uh, you know, especially for people who are giving smaller dollar amounts who may not be able to even deduct the money they gave to charity out of, you know, if they gave cash or a taxable account or something like that, it can still be oftentimes the way to go as far as giving to charity. One of the things, guys, I've been thinking about, because uh, I thought of this just yesterday, I just, as I think through these things, suppose you have a large required minimum distribution. I mean, some people have million, $2 million IRA accounts, and it really doesn't matter how much. And suppose, you know, you're just kind of on that borderline whether you should do a Roth conversion or not. Maybe you talk with your advisor or your CPA about foregoing your required minimum distribution but taking that amount of money and putting it into a Roth, you know, conversion and end up in a Roth account. So, I, I, you know, that just hit me yesterday. I should have thought of it earlier. But that really became because I have a client that has a very large one, a couple hundred thousand dollar required minimum distribution. And we were thinking of... Outside of that, before all this, we were going to do maybe a couple hundred thousand in a Roth conversion. So I talked to the attorney and I said, wouldn't we be better off to not take the required minimum distribution and just basically double up that and put it? He said, ah, I hadn't thought of that either. So I got a star on my page (laughs) yesterday. I I had a question for David. Uh, Going back to your uh, uh, 
distribution issues, does that apply to 401k and 403b or just to the IRA? So it does apply to 401k and 403bs too. So you don't, you don't have required minimum distributions for those accounts either. As far as putting the money back in, I, I would think it still applies. I'm just wondering operationally how yeah. you would do that because normally you get money in there by, uh, you know, withholding from a paycheck. Yeah. Um, is that what you were asking? Yeah. Uh, the other quick thing is that <clears throat> if people have uh, some bad things happening uh, with the uh, downturn of the economy, it might not be a bad time to go ahead and take some money out if you have a lower marginal tax rate this year. So, again, there are lots of – it's kind of issue that we can't really uh, – It's kind of like, yeah, person by person, but it's, these are things to think about. So at least talk to your advisor or CPA about is, hey, my income is going to be down 20 or 30% this year. Uh, is this the time to take – some extra out if we have this large IRA or 401k account that's building and potentially building a bigger tax problem down the road. Again, that's just trying not to leave any stone unturned here. So again, that's a, that's a good thought too, uh, Fred, because a lot of people are going to be in that condition. Of course, then there's going to be people that are in condition where they need to, <laughs> they're not in required minimum distribution, David, but they might actually need to go to their 401k account and get some money. And I think they've increased the limits on that as well. Have they not? Yeah, they've doubled it. So it used to be that the maximum you could borrow from your employer plan was $50,000. Um, but the CARES Act doubled that, so you can take a loan of up to $100,000. Um, the other change that they made, it used to be that, you know, sometimes in a 401k, you have money that is vested, just meaning it's, it's essentially your money, and then you might have a balance that's, that's not vested, um, which is typically like employer matches that have a vesting schedule that, you know, you have to work there a certain number of years until you can basically walk away and keep that money. And, um, sorry, I was just getting a, a phone call that interrupted me. Um, it used to be that they would only let you take a loan up to 50% of your vested balance. Um, but now they, they increased that to a hundred percent of my, of your vested balance. Um, so that also helps increase the amount you can borrow. And then the third benefit is that they allow you to delay the payment. So like any loan, you have to pay it back eventually. Um, but now any payments that would otherwise be owed on the plan loan uh, from the date of enactment through the end of 2020 can be delayed for up to a year. So there are just good benefits there. And again, all this stuff is just little things trying to help people out to get through this tough time that you know, it can make a difference. And and then to get up to that 100000 there are some requirements, but they look pretty liberal to me as I look at them. I'm not going to go through them, but pretty much it's pretty liberal, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of people questioning it. Yeah, it's a kind of uh, – yeah. we mess up the tax code when we have lots of time. They probably mess it up even more. Now, I guess in some cases you have to have a doctor's permission to, to do it, but you can – it's very expansive about uh, if you were affected by the – by the virus. They seem to, as one person said, they threw in the kitchen sink and then they went and threw in another kitchen <laughs> sink and all this. What about the 10% penalty? Uh, I think that I read that, that we're, they'd be exempt from that 10% penalty if they were under 59 and a half as well. So I think... Yeah, exactly. I mean, so if you have to take um, in, like an early withdrawal from an IRA, if it's coronavirus related, um, it would be exempt from the 10% penalty um, and then the other thing is that normally a lot of times, like if you take money out of an employer plan and just take it in cash instead of like a rollover, they're going to mandate that they withhold 20% for taxes. Um, but they are eliminating that for 
for these purposes if you take a distribution related to uh, coronavirus. And then this is where um, money that you take out of an IRA in relation to you know a, a need because of coronavirus, it's eligible to be repaid over three years. Yeah. And this also and so is a, a situation to pay it back. Just because it's possible doesn't mean it's a good idea. It probably should be one of your right. last uh, options. To if you have other ways of of uh, tidying yourself over, this is probably not the not the first thing you go to. And then, yeah, uh, oh, I mean, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dave. Resort. Yeah. What about health? Essentially, it's going to be a last resort. Yeah. What about healthcare? Uh, is, can we now include over-the-counter expenses as far as HSAs and MSAs and all those SAs, FSAs? which is a flexible spending yeah, account. Yeah, so I, I think that's the big change. And this is the, the area I'm, I've read the least about, but that was that was the big takeaway for me was that now you can use those like HSAs and FSAs to um, cover over-the-counter medications, which normally you wouldn't be able to do that. And Fred, now that we have an extra 600, they've really liberalized unemployment. Right. And it looks to me like if you look at the average unemployment around the country, it's somewhere around three fifty, four hundred dollars a month. It varies, obviously. Yeah. What's to say four hundred or so in Illinois, and then another six hundred? You're talking about a thousand a week, and they're starting at week one. I right. suppose there's no delay. Uh, is that a moral hazard uh, in the making? I think so. But again, if you're forced to stay home, but again, if you're given the option or, or have a out, uh, you might want to. Uh, not go back as uh, as quickly as you might otherwise. But again, this is really, I think, is a kind of emergency situation. I wouldn't expect it to continue for a really long time. But but there's always the trade-off. Uh, unemployment is great to try to provide stability, but it also makes it uh, a little bit easier for people to be selective about when they come back into the workforce. I think it even includes self-employed individuals now, which yeah. are generally in the past have been ineligible for it. And, right. and Again, they stretch it out to 39 weeks, so now, then they, they really have thrown a lot at this. And habit. there's an encouragement uh, to lay people off, too. To, uh, businesses now have an advantage, and, and the employees probably have an advantage of being uh, put on unemployment compensation as opposed to simply you know, waiting for a few weeks. And, uh, and w- go ahead, one Dave. Thing, one thing I was going to mention on the self-employed individuals um, getting unemployment benefits is that, you, in at least in Illinois, you – are eligible, but there's no way to apply right now. Yeah, so that's something I was looking into for a client who is self-employed, and it's it's very kind of up in the air. I've been researching it, and they're saying, you know, they're working on it, and it's going to be a number of weeks. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know <laughs> what exactly that means as far as timeline. But yeah. I also wonder too, and and Dr. Gertz, maybe you know this. Like, okay, if someone should theoretically be eligible for these unemployment benefits, but they can't file for a couple months. Do you think there's any chance they'd get paid for the time they should have been receiving it? I think so, especially if they, if they can document, document the fact they made efforts to do it and they couldn't do it because of uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, for, the online being jammed or not being able to get through on telephone or the places being closed. So I, I, I don't... I don't know the answer, but I suspect that they're going to be pretty lenient about this. It's like uh, in, in uh, universities now, I, I suspect that uh, grading is going to be pretty lenient this this semester because of all the issues. I think when you have a problem like this, you, you probably try to loosen things up a, a little bit. And then for that other program, the CARES program, that or the pay, Paycheck Protection uh, Program, part of the CARES Act, that's I actually know businesses have already got the received funding 
right. their bank account within 10 days. Uh, that to me, uh, if, if anything government did quickly and in pretty yeah. liberally, you know, I'd have to say I, I would have never imagined that. Right. Yeah, they, they didn't go for the shovel-ready infrastructure right. this time. They just said, you know, hand out the money. And you, know, you make a lot of big mistakes in handing it out, but at least you get it out into the uh, into the income stream. They must – got to believe that the policymakers, and we could, we could wrap the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, the administration, yeah. they must have been thinking this thing could get really scary really fast without doing some – Right, was like everybody keeps calling it the bazooka, you yeah. know, shooting the federal bazooka at yeah. it. Uh, do you think that that might have been true? That sure, they, they, I, think, I think they wanted to err on the side of uh, of being too aggressive in response as uh, as opposed to the other side. The other thing, which I, I'm not recommending people do this, but I suspect there are a whole lot of things that are going to be more uh, flexible now. I don't think uh, someone's going to be uh, evicted. Uh, if a, a business doesn't pay their rent, uh, some uh, the landlord's not going to come in and kick them out. Uh, first of all, there's no place, no other person to come in to take their place. And, and, and so I think there is going to be a lot of kind of informal flexibility in the economy now as well. Well, it's interesting times that I certainly, and you couldn't see it coming. Well, we uh, we probably, ahead. I think you should say one thing. We haven't talked about investments, about, you know, Staying the course, kind of thing. Yeah, so I was just, I was kind of head there, you know, about the only thing that's sensible to do at this point is to make sure that your current allocation, you you could look at rebalancing to make sure that whatever your target allocation between stocks and bonds mix, uh, is it's not a time when people want to do that, but these are the times you have to really think about doing that. You can do tax loss harvesting, you can do Roth conversion. There's a lot of strategies to try to take advantage of this temporary decline, and I think that's the emphasis I would put on the temporary. Uh, and so staying the course is always well, all, a good offense is, is the yeah, best but, defense. But there's also a, a do no harm. Even if you don't do that, uh, you don't want to go in the opposite direction and panic. You completely don't. You know, look, we've learned and learned and learned, yet some people never learn that it never makes sense to suddenly start building your portfolios based on the current headlines and out of panic. It's not going to work. It never has worked. Uh, so that's staying the course as much as it probably sounds like a cliche, Fred. I think that's, that's the right thing to do, and, uh, and that's what we've been encouraging everything to do. Well, Fred, well, I know. Wait, wait a second, David. I have, to, I, I have to go on this here because this is really important. This is my 36th wedding wow. anniversary today, so my wife Cindy and I. Great. So I told her I'm going to try it. She goes, what are you going to do? What are we going to do for t- our anniversary i said honey after the show i'm gonna go pick out something very special for you so i'm hoping i can get some toilet paper <laughs> because that's the most valuable that's more valuable than a diamond ring these days to people for yeah. I, I was gonna say uh a couple of weeks ago uh i think i lost half a year's income and one day on the market and i went to the store and got a 12 roll of toilet paper i was happy <laughs> <laughs> well because if things get really bad you can pay people in toilet right. paper for it uh, so anyway, glad to have Fred, Dr. Fred Gertz with me today. I think this is a time of many questions for people, and I'm yeah. especially uh, grateful that you're on the show at this particular time. And David, I appreciate you being on. I know being on the phone, David's being more cautious right. than his father is. He won't even hardly talk to me on the driveway. <laughs> he makes me turn the other way. He'll probably keep doing that even after this is over. So anyway, we uh, if people have any questions and you ever just want somebody to talk to that you don't have to worry about, it's going to try to sell you anything. Look, I've been around this business for 36 years. I've seen a lot. I've been studying it for 40 years. I'm always delighted to help people, whether they become a client or not, if they're feeling like they need to hit that panic button and they just need somebody maybe who's been around to 
make some things more sensible to them. Just call me at 356-1400. Other than that, thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. Thanks, Dr. Fred Gertz and David Rudy, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.